At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to Scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. Well, if you are Turkish friends, we'd say, Günaydın. And if you are Iranian friends, we would say, Sobekhir. But we're in Michigan, so I'll say good morning to you. It's good to be with you. It's good to be in, in Michigan again. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And in a few minutes, I'll read that. But first, I want to ask you, have you ever heard someone say, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible? I haven't heard someone say that either. It's a tough book to understand. Oftentimes, we even avoid it. Sometimes as we read it, it can feel depressing. We wonder, how does this fit with with the good news of Christ? How does this work with the big story of redemption that the whole Bible gives to us? It can be hard to follow the author's train of thought. Go ahead and try to outline the book of Ecclesiastes. As you read, it's like the author is at the bottom of a deep, dark pit, and every once in a while, he starts to climb up a few rungs, and the light of hope starts to shine, and you think, okay, this is good, and then he goes right back down, and everything's meaningless. Listening to him is like listening to Job's friends. You hear his conclusions, and you think, it sounds kind of good, but is that right? Is there not more? In the New Testament, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, we're told this, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, that includes Ecclesiastes, we might have hope. So what are we to do? How do we approach this tough book? Well, my goal this morning is to help us do that, to get some of that Christ-rooted instruction, encouragement, and even hope from Ecclesiastes. First, I hope to convince you of what I think is the backstory of the book. And then second, in light of that backstory, we'll look at chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, and there we'll find insight for Christian believers who find themselves in the pit of despair. But first, let's seek seek God's blessing on the proclamation and the reception of his word among us. And if you'd pray with me in your hearts, I'll pray aloud for us. Father in heaven, in the worthy name of Jesus, your son, we ask for your help this morning. Magnify him, we pray, as he ministers to us through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We confess that we cannot understand or apply your word apart from your spirit's work in us. By your grace, we pray you'd powerfully do things in us so that we'd desire to keep changing, to be like our Savior in our inward condition, in our perception of the world, and in our conclusions that we reach about you and about the meaning of life. Do this, we pray, to the praise of your glorious grace in the gospel. Amen. I promise you we will get to reading Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 to 18. But first, I want to tell you a story. 
Their feet ached as they walked. The road was rough and the journey was long. They saw a smoother path. These two men saw a smoother pass, a path over the fence and in a lush green meadow over there. And they decided that looked really appealing. And so they hopped the fence to go on that smoother path. Heavy rains came, though, and the floods surrounded them. They were trapped. They couldn't go back or forward. And in the dark of night, all they could do was find some shelter on higher ground. And there they slept. Well, in the morning, the angry landowner came and interrogated them and berated them. He dragged them back to his house, threw them in a dark dungeon, and beat them with a wooden club. He told them, why don't you just go ahead and end your own lives? Well, for several days, the men sat there chained to a wall. They were sore. They couldn't move. They had no food, no water, no light. They could hardly remember that they were even on a journey. They could hardly remember ways the Lord had helped them along the way. Despair overwhelmed them, and the light of hope was just about gone. Was it even worth trying to stay alive, they wondered? Well, some of you may have realized, if you're familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, you'll recognize those two men as Christian and hopeful. The landowner is giant despair, and the dungeon is in the basement of Doubting Castle. I tell you that story because I think that seeing Christian and hopeful in that dungeon, in the dark, in despair, wondering if they should just kill themselves, helps us get a sense of where Solomon was when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Now, I know there's debate about who wrote the book. I want to recognize that. I also think the evidence points strongly to Solomon better than it would point to anyone else. And I wonder if you remember the trajectory of Solomon's life. It's hard to remember someone, it's hard, sorry, um, it's hard to imagine someone starting out uh, with more promise than Solomon had. He was the king of Israel, the son of the King David. He humbly prayed when he was young with true humility that God would give him wisdom to lead well. He knew he couldn't, and God gave him more wisdom, more money, more honor than any mere human being had before or since. Solomon grew up hearing the Bible, the very words of Yahweh that had rescued his people from Egypt and made them his own and dwelt among them through blood sacrifices. Solomon grew up hearing the words of their covenant Lord. Solomon's reign was at the pinnacle of the United Kingdom of Israel before it split up. All he had to do, all he had to do was stay on the path of God's word. Here's what God said to him in 1 Kings 3.14. God speaking to Solomon. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. All Solomon had to do was stay on the path of faithfulness to God's word. You probably know what happened. Solomon compromised. He, he left the path of God's word especially by marrying unbelieving women. Solomon's heart turned from Yahweh, from the I Am, from their covenant Lord. He joined his wives in bowing down to idols made of wood and metal. 
1 Kings 11, 1 to 8, paints that shocking picture for us. And all of this is to help us sort of get a running start for Ecclesiastes 2, uh, excuse me, 1, 12 to 18 this morning. So 1 Kings 11, 1 to 8, paints that picture of where Solomon ended up. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Three words can sum up what happened to Solomon. Condition, perception, and conclusion. By sinning against the Lord and his word over and over, he left God's path, and he he ruined his own inner condition. And out of that immoral, God-rebelling, against God-rebelling condition, his perception of the world was affected. It became godless. And as he looked at the world, he said, "Mm mm-hmm, this is my conclusion. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. So his, his conclusion came from his perception, and his perception came from his condition. Well, you can study and decide for yourself. I think that's the backstory of the book of Ecclesiastes. I think that explains how King Solomon, the wisest of men, could reach a point where he would say, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, all is vanity. It's all meaningless. What a contrast that is to what he said when he was younger, when he prayed like this in 1 Kings 8.23, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. How far he had fallen. You and I may be shocked by what happened to Solomon. We may even in pride think, how could he ever do that? But let's look at ourselves in the mirror. Even those of us that profess, profess to be Christian believers, we may find ourselves in the pit of despair. There are times that we who profess to follow Jesus look out at the world and we're tempted to think it's all meaningless. We don't see God We don't perceive that we're part of a bigger redemption story. Our daily work feels monotonous, and everything we see, everything everyone's doing, even the courses of nature, look like meaningless repetition. 
rather than seeing a fallen world that yet has good God-directed purposes in it, all we see is the fallenness. We're in the pit of despair. Maybe that's where you are this morning. I don't know. And there, I do want to say there are potentially many reasons that a believer could, could feel like he or she is in the pit of despair, feeling down, depressed. In Ecclesiastes, I believe, I'm convinced, that what we see is someone who's in the pit of despair specifically because of persistent sin, continuing to sin, knowing it's wrong, and searing his conscience. So that's what we have here uh, at least I'm convinced it's what we have. He polluted or ruined his own moral condition, hardened himself. His perception was blinded. And because of that perception, he concluded it's all futile. It's all meaningless. Well, what should you and I do if we find ourselves in the pit of despair? Now let's read Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18. And we'll see there someone who actually tries to get out the wrong way. <laughs> he tries a way that won't work. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what's lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Pray that God would bless the reading of his word to us today. So what we see here is someone who try, he's in the pit of despair, but the way he tries to get out doesn't work. We can call that way intellectualism, intellectualism. In other words, we watch Solomon, or whoever's in this pit of despair, a professing Christian believer, try to get out by knowing a lot of stuff. And the intellectualism in these verses here in Ecclesiastes have three basic ingredients. Verse 13, trying to know all the things people do. Verse 16, trying to know all there is to know more generally. And verse 17, trying to know all that makes people tick internally, what makes people mad or crazy or foolish. So Solomon, or whoever this person is in the pit of despair, says, I know what I'll do. I will learn lots and lots of stuff, and I'll get myself out of here. Now, obviously, we have to say learning those kinds of things is not inherently bad. It can be a good and godly thing. Our family is all about getting a good education. But why? What's the motivation? We have to remember that intellectualism itself, knowing lots of stuff, getting that master's degree, getting that PhD, whatever intellectualism may look like, cannot save us. 
It can't get us out of the pit of despair. It's just a temporary distraction that's ineffective. In fact, intellectualism, in this case, becomes a false gospel. It's like a key that won't open the lock. And the intellectualism in these verses is problematic for three basic reasons. First, it's self-absorbed. You probably noticed that as I read. Second, it has a distorted view of God himself. And third, it doesn't start with repentance. It's self-absorbed, has the distorted view of God, and doesn't start with repentance. Let's look at those one at a time. This intellectualism is self-absorbed. Did you see how many times he said, I, I, I applied my heart, I have seen, I said, I have acquired, I perceived. In Farsi or Persian that we speak in, in Turkey among Iranians, it's, it's, it's almost a, a taboo to say the word I or man. I did this, I did that. So right here, if you're Iranian, you read this and think, that dude is self-centered. I, 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 I. The person in the pit of despair is prone to be self-absorbed. It's all about self, and there's no sign here. He's all alone. There's no sign that he's seeking counsel, help, perspective from someone else around him. And I wonder if you smell the stench of pride in those verses. He actually thinks he can be all-knowing. But only God knows everything. Only God has all wisdom. This writer aims to know all that's done on earth. He claims to have seen it all. He boasts of all the wisdom and knowledge he's acquired. The person in the pit of despair may feel miserable, but that person is proud. I can know it all. There's an author, speaker named Owen Strand, and he said something that I heard a few weeks ago on a long drive from North Carolina in a class on biblical anthropology, he said this, the gospel of our current society and culture here in the U.S. is this. You discover yourself, your true self, self-discovery, self-actualization. Step two is you, you express that outwardly to people around you. Step three is you expect and demand people to affirm and applaud you for what you've done. He said that is arguably the gospel in our culture, our Western culture today. He said even parents are raising their kids to think this is the, what you're supposed to do as a parent. You're supposed to help your kid discover his true identity and then express that and then be applauded by society for what he or she has done. And we may, as followers of Jesus, look at society and think, this is awful. How self-absorbed. But if I and you look in the mirror, what we'll realize is that self-absorption is in us too. So in what ways this morning, right here, right now, are you and I driven by self-absorption? Number two, this intellectualism has the distorted view of God, and this vertically is where everything really hinges. In contrast to all that talk about self, I, 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 we only hear about God one time one time. And even there, in verse 13, God is portrayed like this sovereign Scrooge in the sky. The author says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
God is portrayed like that substitute teacher when your teacher's absent, and the substitute teacher comes in and says, here are worksheets that your teacher gave for me to pass out to you. You know it's meaningless. It's probably not going to be graded just to keep you busy for that hour, right? That's how God is portrayed here. He just gives us miserable, unhappy things to do in our lives, our callings, our jobs, our responsibility, our roles, whatever. It's just the way God is. That's how God's portrayed. And then something else in that verse, verse 13, the name for God there is not Yahweh, that special covenant, self-revealing name, the I am that God gave to Israel, his covenant people. The word is Elohim. It's a name that's more generic, and it points to God's power. So in other words, the person in the pit of despair here looks at God, thinks of God, if he does think of God, and says, God is powerful, but he's just really far away. There's no sense of personal relationship. I can't see him. I can't feel him. If I ever did, it must have been, uh, I must have been mistaken. Not long ago, in the country of Afghanistan, some weeks ago, there were two or three groups, I'm not sure if it was two or three, groups of uh, Afghan Christian believers. And these groups of 50 went to the government to get their ID cards. And for the first time ever, uh, Afghan citizens requested on their ID cards to have the word, under the word, under the word deen or religion or faith, to have the word Isavi, a Jesus follower, a Christian. That's a big step. And it's like signing the notice that says, I know that I'm probably going to be killed, especially if the Taliban right now overtake Afghanistan more and more. They knew what they were doing. But why is that? Why would society quickly pounce on and seek to kill they haven't killed any of these folks yet that I know of uh, who, who, who got ID cards with Christian on, on them. Why is that? Why would a society, whether Afghanistan or Iran or Turkey or wherever, why would they be so against people following Jesus? Well, besides the spiritual war that's out there, one big reason is they have a distorted view of God. Because how you think about God, what you think God is like, how he treats us, deeply affects how we're doing and how we treat people and how we see the world. If you think God is untrustworthy and he's the best deceiver, there's going to be no trust between even the closest people, parents and kids and family members. A distorted view of God, like we see here, uh, uh, is, is one, of the, one of the things in this in this person's life, in the pit of despair that they have that uh, doesn't get them out of the pit of despair. You and I need to ask ourselves this morning what our view of God is. How much are we daily, regularly taking in God's word that shapes our view of who God is and what he's like? Do we think he's like a sovereign Scrooge in the sky that really behind it all, behind all this gospel talk, behind all this talk of grace and mercy and salvation, He's really like Scrooge. He really likes to give us miserable things to do. He likes to see us unhappy. What sources are shaping our view of God? And then third, this intellectualism doesn't start with repentance. 
The self-absorption and distorted view of God here show us that this man has not repented. His thinking hasn't changed, which is where repentance starts. His direction in life hasn't changed. His behavior hasn't changed. He still hasn't come back to the Lord to simply confess his sin. To receive mercy, free mercy, to get back on the path of grace and truth. The person in the pit still thinks he can save himself, and so he still concludes that all is vanity. It's all meaningless, verses 14 and 17. It's a striving after wind. He concludes that nothing ever really changes for the better, verse 15, and all he's found is more sorrow. The path he's on just creates more questions. A young Iranian woman uh, in our city in Turkey came to us one day. She called me and my co-pastor, Farhad. She said, well, she said, she said, I want to speak with you two. So we sat down. She said, this is my baptism certificate. I want to give it back to you because the day I was baptized, I was not a believer. I lied because I thought this certificate would help me with my refugee case with the UN. You can have it back, you can do whatever you want with it. Now I really believe this stuff. We have seen a woman who tried everything, all kinds of spiritistic practices, all kinds of gossip, slander, messy relationships, someone you think, Lord, is there hope? And she has become a woman of prayer, a woman who forgives those who wrong her. That's true repentance, and she's a hero, a hero for us. How about you and me? This morning, right here, right now, and and how we're thinking, how we're thinking about God, what we're wanting, how we're behaving, what our goals are, our treasure, where is the Lord calling you and me this morning to repent? I wonder if you remember what happened to Christian and Hopeful in that story. Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? Hopeful encourages Christian to press on while they're still there in that dungeon. Christian remembers, I have a key around my neck. It's called promise. They open the door. They get out two doors. They get out. Giant despair chases them. But when the sunlight hits them, he falls into a seizure. They hop back onto the good path. But they also leave a sign there. The sign is to warn people that come after them and to say, that's the territory of giant despair. Beware and don't go there because this is what will happen to you. The book of Ecclesiastes serves that function for you and me. Like Solomon, you and I can't escape the pit of despair through intellectualism. It's self-absorbed. It has a rotten view of God. And it doesn't start with repentance. But like them, like Christian hopeful, we can escape by believing the promise of God in the gospel. Rather than saying, I, 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 I will do this, we give up defending ourselves. We give up insisting we're right. We say, I do wrong. I am wrong. I will look to Jesus, who he is for me, what he has attained for me. His death, his perfect life, his resurrection, his ascension, his gift of the Holy Spirit. By faith, I'm united to him, so he's given me and attained for me everything that I need. He's Christ Jesus who became for us, 1 Corinthians 1, 
wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What freedom, what glory, what relief, what peace to come to him, to turn again from self to the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the seed of your word would find good soil in our hearts. We pray you'd continue to bring Christ-like and Christ-word change to our condition, our perception, and our conclusions about life. When we're tempted to despair, help us take our eyes off of ourselves, who we are, what we might attain to try to rescue ourselves from despair. Please help us instead to fix our eyes on our omnicompetent Savior, Jesus, the very wisdom of God, looking to him with fresh faith in the perfection of who he is, in the perfection of what he has attained for us. Grant us fresh insight into the breathtaking truth of our union with him. And thank you, Father, for the freedom and peace that comes to us when by your gracious hand we behold the glories of your Son again and are changed in the process. And Father, for any here in this place this morning who don't actually know you yet and maybe think they do but really don't, those that are still in their sins, not reconciled to you through the gospel of your Son, we ask that you'd save them so that they might join us as fellow recipients of this grace and mercy, saved from hell, saved from sin, saved from Satan's bondage, and saved from death, that in Christ they might be saved to you. And it's in Christ's worthy name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.